from Las Vegas. You're listening to Verve Church for people who don't like church. Thanks for tuning in. Happy Father's Day to all you dads. I uh, hope you have an awesome day. I also know that uh, for some of us, uh, the word father, the idea of Father's Day uh, brings up something negative. Maybe you've lost your dad recently. Maybe you, uh, like me, didn't have the greatest father. And so, man, I'm sorry if, if it's a hard day for you. Um, but the night's won since we, since we last met. Pretty cool. All right. So uh, back in uh, mid-1990s, there's this uh, milk truck driver named Charlie Roberts, and he and his wife, Amy, gave birth to their first child, little baby girl who lived for 20 minutes and then died. And um, his daughter's death affected Charlie in a profound way. He was angry. He never forgave God. And he vowed, starting that very day, that he was going to get revenge. Nine years later, in uh, October 2006, Charlie Roberts dropped off his two kids that he had since had uh, at the bus stop and then went to a little one-room Amish schoolhouse with a gun. And he ordered uh, the men and boys to leave the room, and then he lined up the 10 little girls, uh, age 6 to 13, and he apologized for what he was about to do, shot all 10 of them, and then shot himself and committed suicide. Uh, five of the girls died, five survived, and... Um, and when we hear something like that, we are shocked, right? Unfortunately, we're shocked way too often at hearing things like that. We're, we're shocked. And, and that is an extreme example. That is shocking. But, you know, the, the reality is we're shocked all the time. We're shocked all the time by, by all kinds of things. The things people say, whether it's people on TV or our friends, uh, Facebook, whatever. Uh, we're shocked by the things people do. We are shocked all the time. But should we be? Should we be shocked? Uh, in 2008, there's a, an American philosopher named Jacob Needleman, and he is uh, ed educated at Harvard and Yale, smart dude. Um, he wrote this book called Why Can't We Be Good? Why Can't We Be Good? Uh, basically, he says in this book that uh, social theorists and, and therapists and uh, politicians are, are giving speeches and they're writing books and they're making laws telling us how we should live. But, but he says the real problem with the human race is not that we don't know how to live. We do know. The problem is we know, but we don't do it. Every single civilization has a moral code and a criminal justice system of some sort to punish those who don't follow the moral code. And yet every single civilization has widespread violations of that moral code. And so in this book, he says, man, the reality is that there is something wrong in us. And uh, you, you take what's wrong in me and in you and in all of us, and you put it all together, and it becomes a huge mess. Theologically, the Bible would say that the human race was created good, that we were created good. We were made in the image of God, uh, that there is something good about each of us and in us. But there is also 
in each of us a natural bent to do evil, to, to be selfish and sinful. Uh, theologians talk about the fall, that in the beginning, uh, people decided that instead of following God and living in his goodness, that they were going to go their own way. And every single person since has made the same choice. And because of that, we are all capable of great evil. And you might say, evil? Come on, bro. Like, that's, a, that's kind of a strong word. Happy Father's Day. This is a great Father's Day message. I mean, come on. Je I mean, Jesus never called this evil. Uh, yeah, actually, he did uh, quite a few times. I'll show you just two of them. Uh, here's two examples. In Matthew 7, uh, 11, he says, If you then, though you are evil... And in Matthew 7, verse 23, he says, Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus knew what's inside of us. And that's why. He knew what we were capable of. And that's why, if you study the life of Jesus, one thing you might notice is that he was never shocked. We're shocked all the time by things people say and do. Jesus was never shocked. Like you read through all the stories about his life, and you never see uh, someone like sin and Jesus say, <gasps> what was that? What did you just do? Never shocked. Uh, he never meets someone who's caught in a sinful lifestyle or sinful profession, and he says, oh, well, I never, I mean, I just, I, well, I'll, I will just say that I am scandalized. Never happens. Never happens. Jesus knew, the Bible says, that all have sinned that all fall short of the glory of God. He knew that we all, the Bible says, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Jesus loved everyone. He showed compassion, but he knew that there is something wrong deeply ingrained in each of us. And that's why he said, if you then, though you are evil, he said that we are evil. And the hard truth is we are more than just evil. Um, look what the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 30. It says, we actually invent ways of doing evil. It's like we are resourceful entrepreneurs when it comes to sinning. Like there should be a show like Shark Tank, and you go up and you're like, I got this new idea of something I'm going to do. This is really crazy. And, and like, like we invent ways of sinning. Jesus was never shocked, though. He was never shocked because he knew what to expect. Um, look at what we're told in John chapter 2. Uh, before this, hap this verse says that people were starting to believe in Jesus, and then it says, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. There's a, a great book uh, by Brant Hansen. He's a radio DJ and author, um, and we, I use this book as a resource. If you want to check it out, you should. It's called Unoffendable. Um, and in, in Unoffendable, uh, Brant Hansen writes, a big part of being unoffendable is seeing the human heart for what it is, untrustworthy, unfaithful, prone to selfishness. Got it? Now we don't have to be shocked. It's true. So why are, you, why are we shocked? Why are you shocked when you find out that your friend was talking about you behind your back? Why are you shocked? Why are you shocked when it comes out that a respected leader was doing something unrespectable behind the scenes? 
Why are you shocked when your spouse gives you a little attitude or your kid gives you a lot of attitude? Or, or when you discover that someone who you thought was reasonable holds a political position that you think is insane. You're like, how could they think that? Why are you shocked? When, when your boss yells at you, when the man in your house leaves the, table, the, the toilet seat up for the thousandth time, even though you've asked him not to thousandth of times. Um, I've decided to say thousandth with a lisp there. I don't know why. Um, why are you shocked? When, when your mother says what she always says, and you say, I just can't believe she said that. Really? How long has she been saying that? She's been saying stuff like that for 47 years, and you're still shocked. Maybe just go ahead and believe it this time. No more, I can't believe it. Why are you shocked? Seriously. Like, like you've been around the block a few times, right? You know uh, about human nature. You know what's in a person's heart. Brant Hansen, in that book, he continues, he says, um, the usual story is, I just can't believe he would ever do something like that. He didn't seem the type. What is the type to do something unthinkably horrible? The human heart is capable of staggering evil, and evil people rarely dress in horns and a pitchfork, even if it would make it easier for us to identify them. This is one of the reasons that the TV show Breaking Bad was so genius, because it showed how this guy, who was basically a good guy, he was a boring guy, he was a family guy, chemistry teacher, how he could uh, justify doing unspeakable crimes and just transform it into something so evil. And without God redeeming and restoring our hearts, we are all capable of doing things that we don't think we're capable of doing. So maybe we shouldn't be shocked. Maybe we shouldn't be shocked. Perhaps we need to realize that this is just how people are. Now, just to be clear, it doesn't make their behavior okay. Right? We're, not, we're not saying, you know, it's fine that they do it because that's the way people, we're not saying that at all. We're not saying it, uh, it doesn't rationalize sin. Doesn't say, hey, it's okay if I do this because it's way. No, no, no. I'm just saying that we need to have an awareness that people are sinful and they do stupid things all the time. So we're not surprised. And if we're not shocked, maybe, as we've been talking about the last two weeks in the series, maybe we could start living unoffendable lives and stop being angry. And. Have you ever noticed how we're shocked by others' behavior, but so easily able to justify our own? Have you noticed this, right? We, we talked about last week, we get righteously angry at other people's sin, but why is it always other people's sin? Why don't we get righteously angry at our own sin? Maybe if we didn't think so highly of ourselves, we wouldn't be so offended by other people. I mean, it's just so easy to, to criticize their foul language but ignore our spiritual pride. So, so easy to uh, judge their sexual sin and ignore our gluttony, right? So, so easy to uh, condemn their sinful attitude and ignore our spiritual apathy. And, and my point is that we are not as good as we think we are. We're not, we're not pretty good. 
Um, I, I love this verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Uh, it's, it's this caution that God gives us. It says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Makes sense, right? Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Like, just look to have, have an honest assessment of yourself. Makes sense. We're just not very good at it. We're not good at this at all. We're just not very good at being honest about how not good we are. Uh, for instance, how many times have you been driving on the highway, somebody like swerves into your lane, and you say, that jerk, right? But how many times have you been driving on the highway and thought to yourself, I'm a jerk? Never, right? Never. Why? Because you're not a jerk. You're a good person. You have a good heart. You didn't mean to swerve into their lane. You just didn't see them. Like, you would never do that on purpose, right? Everybody else is a jerk but me. And it's not just driving. Like, despite all we read in the Bible about how everyone is evil and about how we're like Thomas Edison when it comes to inventing new ways of sinning, and um, the Bible tells us over and over that the heart is deceitful above all things. We lie to ourselves. Even still... We're all convinced that we're pretty good. It's everyone else who's the problem. There's this um, guy named uh, Daniel Kahneman. That, that's him right there. Um, he won the 2002 Nobel Prize uh, in economics for his work as a moral psychologist. Um, there was an interview of him uh, for an article called Your Lying Mind. Your Lying Mind. And in this article, Kahneman explains that um, we are all, and it's like, Tons of research has proven this at this point. We are hardwired to delude ourselves. Um, we have these, um, what he calls, what scientists call cognitive biases, uh, which are faulty, irrational ways of thinking that act as optical illusions when we look at ourselves. And so what, what science has learned is when you look at yourself, you can't trust what you're seeing, not your physical appearance, but like what's inside because of these cognitive biases. What are some of these cognitive biases? Uh, there are dozens. I'll share with you like five or six. Uh, one is called the attribution bias. We're all guilty of this. It just comes easy to us. Attribution bias is this. When someone else does something wrong, I blame their character but when I do something wrong, I blame my circumstances, right? It's like, that person, I hate him because he did this. Me, I'm just a victim. I never would have done it except for the situation I was in. Uh, there's also confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is we look for evidence that confirms what we already believe, and we will ignore or discount any evidence that goes against the decision, the belief I already have. Uh, this is why there are lots of people who say things like, well, yeah, I know all the scientists say that, but they're all wrong. How do I know they're wrong? Well, I read this blog, and this guy, yes, he only has a high school education, but this guy, yes, he lives in his mother's basement, but this guy, he's a very, he's a very prolific blog writer, and he says all the scientists are wrong, and his facts are right. Right? It's just like I, I believe whatever I want to believe, and I just look for evidence that confirms it. There's also what's called attitude polarization. Um, the idea is if you commit to a, to a position, uh, we will doggedly entrench ourselves in that position, even if all the evidence is mounting against it. 
Uh, there's also um, something that's called the overplacement effect. The overplacement effect. This is fun. Um, and it's basically the idea, and this is like, again, proven scientific kind of stuff, um, that we all think we're better than we really are. Um, that we think we're better at most things than most people. Uh, for instance, they've done tons of research on this. What they've discovered is 93% of people believe that they are better than the average driver. Just in case you're not good at math, like me, um, the reality is 50% of people are better than average, and 50% of people are worse than average drivers, but 93% of people say, I am better than an average driver. I like the 7% who are like, oh no, I suck. Like, don't even get in a car with me. I'm dangerous. I'm, I'm a pretty bad driver. I like those 7%. At least they're honest, right? Uh, 90% of college professors believe that they are above average teachers. No, 50% are, but 90% believe it. And check this one out. Um, they've done all these, these surveys. 99% of high school students uh, believe that they have better than average social skills. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen some of those interviews or the, the high schoolers like, yes, I believe it. I have better than average high school, better than average social. Why did you even ask me? What, well, yeah, what, what was the question? Yes, I believe I have better than average social. Stop, stop looking at me. That was my performance today of a high school student with bad social skills claiming to have above average social skills. Happy Father's Day. Um, all, again, all those numbers are mathematically impossible, but we all believe it because we're naturally overconfident. Uh, another one's called the third-person effect. Um, third-person effect, they've discovered that people believe that mass media and social media have a profound effect on the belief of others, but not me. That most people say, oh, yeah. Other people, they watch the news and they watch, their, you know, look at their social media and they believe everything. And so, you know, they're spouting all these lies and they believe them all. Not me. Like I watch the news and I'm discerning. I know what's the truth and what's the lies and I'm, I'm different than that. And just in case you read through that and you listened to me explain all those and you thought, huh, I, I've seen that in a lot of people. That's, I think that is true for a lot of people but not me. There is another cognitive bias called the bias blind spot. They have discovered that uh, most everyone thinks that other people are biased, but they're not. I'm the one person in the world who is not biased. There's another article called Your Lying Mind, and this guy Richard Nisbet, he is a uh, social psychologist at the University of Michigan. He says, most people think they're not like most people. But they are. We're all the same. So psychologists call this cognitive biases. If you look in the Bible, you'll never see that phrase. The Bible talks about um, deceiving yourself. There's a lot in the Bible about how we just deceive ourselves. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about um, having a deluded heart. Like we, we just lie to ourselves. And that's why uh, you are so shocked by other people, but not by yourself. We're biased, and our bias leads to pride. Um, we think we're pretty good. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but we're pretty good. And, and so, since I'm pretty good, 
I can judge and get angry and be offended by other people because they're not pretty good. They're wrong, and, and they're worse than me. That is a very dangerous place to be, and it is uh, difficult, almost impossible to not find yourself in that place. So uh, Jesus told the story once. Um, it's called a parable. A parable is a story with a spiritual lesson kind of kind of hidden in it. Not hidden, but like you got to go, oh, wait, this is more than just the story. There's something to learn here. Um, so the story starts out like this. Um, it says, to some, the story doesn't start out like this. Here's the context. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So before we look at the parable, can you picture the crowd? Can you picture these people who um, thought they were smarter than everyone else, thought they were godlier than everyone else, thought they were right about everything? Uh, Ask them about theological issues they know the right answers. Uh, They're right about political issues. They're right about vaccinations about mass or no mass, about gun laws, about racial issues, about changes their church should make, about how to parent children, and whether there should be pickles on fried chicken sandwiches. They're right about everything. Do you know anyone like that? You know anyone like that? Well, like, I know some people like that, and um, they're so annoying. Like, like, I have some friends who think they're right about everything, and, and they're always spouting off their opinions, but they're not their opinions. For them, they're facts because they know everything. And and I just feel like I am so lucky to know you. I mean, how lucky am I? There are like about 8 billion people in the world, and I get to be friends with the one person who's right about everything. I am so lucky. And then one day I wondered wait a second, am I like that? Is that me? Because I have a lot of opinions, and I ask myself, do I, which of my opinions do I think I'm wrong about? Well, none of them, I guess. That's why I, that's why I have those opinions. And I was like, wait a second, do I think I'm always right? Are you like that? Do you think you're right about everything you think about? So, Jesus is talking to a group of people probably kind of like us, right? To a group of people who, who are very confident in themselves. And uh, here's the parable. Here's the story he says. It says, two men went up to the temple, to church, uh, to pray. One, a Pharisee, I'll explain in a second, and the other, a tax player, collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tithe of all I get, give a tenth of all I get. And Jesus says, but the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven, but just beat his breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, 
went home justified before God. Just as for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the, the Pharisees uh, were esteemed by everyone. They were the people who, like, literally, when they walked down the street, people were like, oh, look, he's a Pharisee. Look, he's a Pharisee. That's him. He's one of them. They, they, were, uh, they were esteemed because they were outwardly righteous, and they were very self-assured about their godliness because they fastidiously followed these 613 religious rules. I is smart because I use big words like fastidiously. Anyway, um, it just very carefully followed all these rules. Uh, the tax collectors uh, were despised by everyone. When they went down the street, people would be like, oh, it's, I hate them. I hate that guy. And they were considered outwardly sinful. And, and the reason was because the tax collectors were Jewish people who had sided with the Roman oppressive government who were killing faithful Jews and had gone into uh, work for them uh, as a tax collector, taking the Jewish people's money so the Romans could go to the next town and kill more Jews. Okay? And so in Jesus' story, the Pharisee brags on his spiritual resume and thanks God that he is not like sinful people. The tax collector, man, he won't even look up to heaven. He doesn't feel like he even has the right to look to heaven. All he can do is say, God, please, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And Jesus' conclusion, um, I can't state this strongly enough, would have shocked everyone. Like, I mean, like, <gasps> went through the crowd when Jesus said that it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who went home justified before God. You, you couldn't say anything more, more, more crazy than what Jesus just said. Why did he say it? He says, because all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So apparently, for Jesus, it's not just about right and wrong. It's also about pride and humility. In fact, it seems like for Jesus, it's more about pride and humility. Unfortunately, if uh, we're not careful, Christians can easily slip into self-righteousness and pride, just like the, the Pharisee in Jesus' story. In fact, um, I've come to the conclusion that as I look at Christians in the world, I'm like, I think that Christians assume that part of their, their job description as Christians is to be right. That's, as Christians, we have all the answers. We are right. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that our job is to be right. We are to be loving. Jesus didn't call us to be right. He called us to be loving. And if you're right, but you're right in a way that's not loving, you are wrong. You're wrong. Jesus said those who exalt themselves will be humbled in the end. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. There's a, a pastor in Nashville. His name is Scott Sauls. He wrote this uh, it's a good book called Gentle Answer. He says, whenever a feeling rises in us, whenever you start to feel 
uh, in us that resembles the Pharisee's prayer. Thank you, my God, that I am not like other men. The most important thing we can do is pause, take inventory of our hearts, and run to Jesus for clarity and also for mercy. You get that? He's saying anytime you start to feel a little bit of pride, anytime you start to go, I'm, I'm pretty good. Maybe I didn't used to be, but I'm pretty good. He says, man, the, what you need to do is pause in that moment. Like, uh, consider that a, a warning light on your dashboard saying something is wrong with your heart. You think you're pretty good. You're prideful. And he says, take inventory of your heart. Run to Jesus for clarity and also for mercy. God, show me who I really am. Show me my heart. And, and so instead of praying the Pharisee's prayer, what we should do is pray the tax collector's prayer. That should be our attitude. Who say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's actually interesting. For hundreds and hundreds of years now, uh, Christians have been praying the, the tax collector's prayer. Um, you know, when we pray, you can just pray from your heart and talk to God, just having a conversation with God. But some people like to use kind of written out prayers. And one of the most famous and popular written out prayers is uh, this prayer. It's called the Jesus prayer doesn't make any sense to me. I think they should have called it the tax collector's prayer. That would make sense. But people call it the Jesus prayer. If you go home today and you Google the Jesus prayer, you're going to be like, oh, it's the prayer the tax collector prayed. Um, and typically, if you Google it or uh, talk to somebody who does this, typically this prayer goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, so that's kind of been added on, have mercy on me, a sinner, which is what he prayed. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Listen, if you want to grow... Um, into who God wants you to be, into a loving person. This is a great prayer to pray. There's a, a pastor in the Bronx um, named uh, Rich Velotis. He writes in a book called Be- Good, Beautiful, and Kind. He says, Christians throughout the ages have looked to this parable and used it as a framework for prayer and for loving well, because this prayer is good for the soul. The prayer grounds us in our ongoing capacity to miss the mark. It calls us to receive Jesus' mercy desperately and joyfully. In a blaming and scapegoating culture, the Jesus prayer helps us confront our duplicitous ways. In an attacking and shaming society, the Jesus prayer grounds us in our own inconsistencies. In a finger-pointing and judgmental world, the Jesus prayer awakens us to the dark secrets we harbor within. In so doing, the Jesus prayer petitions the mercy of God, which is to lead us in petitioning mercy for others. After a while praying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, we begin to pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on him or her, a sinner. So the idea is that praying this prayer, having this attitude, helps us to focus on our sins instead of other people's sins, on our need for mercy, and that when we have that attitude, we start to, instead of getting angry and offended by other people's sins, we start to want mercy for them as well. And this is an essential part of becoming a loving person. It's this humble recognition that we're not pretty good. I mean, if, if we're all pretty good, then what was the cross all about? Why did Jesus have to die? It was necessary because we've all chosen evil. We have all sinned, and our sin rightfully makes God angry. And our sin has to be punished. 
And we would all agree with that, except for it's our sin. Right? Like if I told you, hey, do you hear the story in the news? This guy did horrible, evil things to a bunch of people. And then the judge was like, eh, it's okay. Just go on. No, 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 no worries. You'd be like, mm, he did horrible things to people. There should be consequences. Right? We, we believe there should be consequences for sin. Just not my sin. <laughs> right? And, and so our sin, it makes God angry. It needs to be punished. Someone has to pay the price for our self-centeredness. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He took our sin and he took God's anger on himself. He took our punishment. And while he was dying on the cross and forgives the people who put him there. When, when we put our faith in Jesus, it makes us not guilty of our sins. All our sins, past, present, future, all gone, all put on Jesus. Not only that, but at the same time, when we put our faith in Jesus, God in his Holy Spirit moves inside of us to empower us to live the life he has for us. And because of that, um, he starts restoring our hearts, and we finally have the capacity to live a beautiful life. If, if you want to, if, if you need to put your faith in Jesus in a meaningful way, in a life-changing way, Man, would you, would you let us know so that we can walk with you through that? Um, there's a connection card, digital connection card, verb.cc. Uh, you can let us know through that. We'll reach out to you, um, help, you know, just give you whatever help you need in making that decision. Talk to you about next steps after you make a decision like that. Um, one of the next steps is baptism, which we're doing baptisms again on July 23rd. It's about four weeks or so from now. And so um, we could talk to you about that. If you're interested in that, you can sign up in the connection card. And when we do that, when we put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit was inside of us, we're finally capable of living above anger and becoming unoffendable. In this, in this mess of a world, um, we get to live beautiful lives, which is what Jesus did. He stepped into the mess of the world and he lived this beautiful life. We get to bring beauty to the mess. Uh, when, when you live a life of grace, it stands out. People will marvel when you live in a different way. You live a life of humility and service and gratitude and grace. People are shocked. Do you remember um, Charlie Roberts, the guy who went into the little Amish schoolhouse and shot the 10 girls, five of them died, then he committed suicide? Uh, well, in the midst of their uh, grief over their loss, the Amish community in that town did not cast blame. They did not point fingers. They didn't hold press conferences with lawyers standing next to them. Instead, they immediately started reaching out with grace and compassion to the dead killer's family. In fact, the afternoon of the shooting, uh, one of the Amish grandfathers of one of the girls who was killed publicly expressed his forgiveness of his granddaughter's killer. Uh, the same day, uh, Amish neighbors all went and visited the Roberts family to comfort them in their sorrow and pain because they lost their son that day. They lost their dad that day. And uh, when it finally came time for Charlie Roberts' funeral, the Amish outnumbered the other mourners at the killer's funeral. And the Amish immediately forgave him, showed compassion and mercy, and the world, it was a big news story, you might remember, the world marveled. They said, how? They were shocked. How, 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 is, how are these people capable of, of, of offering forgiveness like that? And I don't know a ton about the Amish, 
but I do know that um, they focus their lives on obeying Jesus and becoming like Jesus. And they were able to offer forgiveness like that because they focused their lives on uh, obeying Jesus and living like Jesus. And we can too. We can live shockingly beautiful lives by our refusal to get offended and be angry. We're going to pray for that. Um, because that living that way is uh, it's founded in us embracing that we are not pretty good, but we are perfectly loved. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray with you. And I'm actually going to um, have us pray the, the Jesus prayer together. And then um, I'm going to give you some time to pray on your own. And uh, as you pray on your own, um, if you'd like, if you're here in the room, uh, there's also communion available. Um, it's in the back of the room on the tables. And it's a piece of bread and a cup of juice that represent Jesus' body and blood. And it's this beautiful, tangible way that we can remember and be grateful for what Jesus did for us. And so um, if you'd like to take that, you can go and get it when you're ready. Bring it back to your seat, okay? Let's, let's pray. So the, the Jesus prayer says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, my, one of my prayers would be that every person listening to these words would at some point in their life decide that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are God. You are the Son of God come to earth to show us how to live, to offer us your love and an example to follow. God, would you have mercy on me? Would you have mercy on us? Because we are sinners. And the truth is we do not, uh, in our own goodness, we do not deserve to stand in front of you. We have no right to come to you, no right to speak to you. Because we are sinful, we are a mess. God, we are so thankful for the mercy that you've shown us by sending your son Jesus to come and live for us and die for us, to pour out his blood for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we can come before you boldly and with confidence, knowing that we are loved and that our sin is gone. Thank you. God, maybe there's someone in this room or someone watching online who, who is like, I need to have my sin forgiven. By putting my faith in Jesus, I want to get baptized. How awesome would that be? So God, as we enter into this time of praying on our own or taking communion, would you just help us remember that we are not pretty good, but we are perfectly loved. We're so grateful for that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.